Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Well, welcome along to the show. Today we're going to be speaking with Dr. Peter Simpson about literature and art in New Zealand. Here's an excerpt from the interview with Peter. Their sort of artistic mission, if you like, was to to create an art in New Zealand which took its bearings from what the best that was happening elsewhere in the world. Mm. And they said, you know, we want to be true to our own place, but we want to bring to bear on our place the highest metropolitan standards. So... Mm. For that generation, it was essentially modernism, and so they tried to bring mm. the values and standards of modernism to bear mm. on their situation as New Zealand artists. Mm. Now, in the next episode of the podcast, we'll be speaking with Fiona Allen, who's the chief executive of Paralympics New Zealand. You regular listeners will know that that's nothing new, because every week we tend to talk with somebody who's completely different from the week before. If you don't want to miss out on upcoming episodes, then hit subscribe. Now let's get into this interview with Peter. So I'm delighted to welcome Peter Simpson to the podcast today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Um, Today uh, we're going to be talking about a diverse range of topics, I think, because looking back at your life, you've been involved in a number of different things. Mm -hmm. Um, But to start with, uh, what, what I do on the podcast is usually ask people to explain a little bit about their background and where they're from, sure. so that the listeners can understand some of the context. And then one of the things I'd love to explore with you is some of um, your thoughts about the literary tradition down in Christchurch, mm-hmm. particularly that period, 1933 to 53, mm-hmm. which was the subject of your Bloomsbury South book. Indeed. And, and as part of that, um, one of the things that we share is an, a deep appreciation of Alan Kernow. Yeah. And so I'd really love to hear a little bit about your experiences of, of knowing him and, yes. and what, what that was like and what he was like. Right. Um, so if we can start, just tell us a little bit about where you're from. Okay. Well, I was born in 1942, so I'm 75. And uh, I was born in Takaka in Golden Bay, and uh, I grew up on a dairy farm, and um, I, I came from a family of uh, seven children. Mm. I, I was close to the end of the family. I was the sixth in a family of seven, and um, so I spent my childhood in the Takika Valley, which uh, I now look upon as, as a great... Um, privilege because it's a, a very un, a beautiful and unusual place and uh, I'm I still have a strong attachment to it mm. um, a wonderful very unusual landscape because of the the marble mountain you know the Takika hill the Pikikaruna range is uh, part of the oldest rocks in New Zealand. It's the same rocks as, as are in Fiordland, but they were pushed apart by the Kaikoura orogeny, which created the Southern Alps. And uh, so they're very ancient rocks and uh, steep-sided and a lot of limestone and marble, which is 
dissolves in water, so it produces extraordinarily plunging valleys mm. and uh, caves and sinkholes and all sorts of other, a cast mm. landscape, as they call it. Mm. So that was, uh, I've always been very attached to that, uh, mm. that landscape. Anyway, um, I did my... Um, and that, that environment growing up as well, let's just pick apart a little bit, because yeah. 1942 is the war. Yes. What was that like, sort of your first childhood memories would have been that period just after the war, I imagine? Yeah. Well, there, there were sort of stories in the family, partly mythologized, I think, but mm. um, that my father was um, searching out caves in the hills to um, take my mother... It should have happened that the Japanese invaded. Mm. Um, and so around about the time of my birth, just after Pearl Harbor, and um, mm. and there was a very real sense of the danger of invasion. Mm. Uh, Alan Kurnow knew all about that. Mm. Um, so... Yes, so I was very much a war child. My our family, none of our family went to war. All of my brothers were too young to become soldiers, and my father was too old. So the, right. the war sort of passed us by. Um, but anyway, I spent my, I did my primary schooling in Tarkika, walking. We had we had a farm that was uh, on the old east road that ran alongside the, the hills. And um, we used to, as kids, walk to the, around to the main road, which was about a mile away, to catch the bus each morning to mm. drive down to Takaka Township where the school was. Um, so we were, it was pretty remote kind of um, life with no neighbours nearer than, you know, a mile or two away. Mm. Um, so I spent um, my primary years at Tarkika District High School. But uh, at the age of 12, when I went to high school, my parents decided that they wanted me to get a better quality of education than was available locally. So I went to Nelson College mm. and um, uh, stayed private boarded with strangers and relatives um, until my parents actually moved to, uh, to Nelson. And I spent the last high school years with them, but I was at um, Nelson College for five years, mm -hmm. 1955 to 59, and then, like most of the uh, my schoolmates, we went to Canterbury University mm. um, in 1960. And that, that period, that childhood, as we're recording this, we're in your um, office, mm. we're surrounded by books, and right. I absolutely love it, there's books everywhere. Right. Was that, and, and that's played out in your career as well, mm. that... that letters and and works and books have yeah. been a big part of it can you trace it back to your childhood do you think was there was there some some forming mm. what formed you well there weren't a lot of books in our home um, and most of my 
siblings are not literary people. Uh, if there's a common thread running through the family, it's uh, growing things. Uh, my father was a farmer and then he started a nursery business on the farm and several of my older brothers subsequently became nurserymen and um, my younger brother Philip is a, is a botanist and uh, my sisters were keen gardeners, you know. So mostly the people in our family were, were into nature and growing things. I was the bookworm of the family and right. would much prefer to lie on my bed and read a book, you know. Um, so that did come out quite early on? Yeah, pretty early. Yeah. And there were a few myths. You know, my one of my older sisters, I've had, I can't remember this, but I've told about it, that uh, when I was th three or four years old, she forced me to learn long passages of Shakespeare off by heart and recite them. And there was a family story about a grandfather who uh, was kept alive when he was snowed in on Mount Arthur, which is the largest mountain in the mm. Nelson area. He was snowed in and he kept himself alive by stamping around all night quoting Shakespeare to himself. Mm. So there seems to have been Mm. Some kind of literary sensibility. Right. In the a few family. little seeds we can see there. <laughs> yeah. But I just, uh, I just loved reading, and I had there were plenty of older brothers around to do the work on the farm and so okay. forth. And I was often, <laughs> I would say, be told, you know, oh, go away and read a book, <laughs> which I was always very happy to do. Right. But um, I just uh, proved to have a talent for um, studying literature and English and mm. at high school, and I sort of followed my nose really mm. and uh, studied English at um, at the university. It was the subject that I liked the most and mm. was the best at, and um, so that's what I decided to specialise in. So it sounds like it fell naturally into place going down in, in yeah, 1960. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. And um, so I did a. I did a BA and then an MA in, in English at Canterbury University from 1960 to 64. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the particular generation that I belonged to, we were rather fortunate in employment, in employment terms because mm. we all graduated about 1964 or thereabouts. And then two years later, the baby boomers arrived in the university and the population of the university expanded right. rapidly. And there was a sudden urgent need for more teachers uh, at uh. university level. So, um, so myself and my wife and a lot of my contemporaries, we all got jobs teaching at the university mm. uh, just with our MAs, you know. Um, and... Uh, so jobs were easy to come by, I suppose you could say. Mm. But I um, I taught in at Canterbury for, I think, about three or four years in the 60s and could have stayed there for the rest of my life, but I felt mm. a bit of wanderlust and the desire to see something of the world. So mm. I, um, I decided to go to Canada and... Uh, uh, to the University of Toronto, where mm. I studied for my doctorate. And um, I spent quite a few years living in Canada, teaching in universities there, 
and then eventually um, returned, after I'd finished my doctorate, I returned to teach at the University of Canterbury mm. in 1976, I think it was. Mm. So quite a lot of my life was spent in Christchurch um, from the age of 17 when I was a student, um, and then I was overseas for eight years, but came back in 76 and lived in Christchurch for another dozen or so years mm. before eventually moving to Auckland. Mm. And we'll come back to this in a few minutes, but did you know at that time when you were studying there and, and started your career working th of that sort of that literary tradition or that, that period that had been just before, I guess, when you had yes. arrived? Well, I did in a way because the people who taught me at the University of Canterbury in the English department were a very gifted uh, bunch of teachers and... Probably the best known of them was Winston Rhodes, um, Lawrence Bagent, Ray Copeland, Archie Stockwell, Charles Spear. Um, they were all much of a of a, a generation, and they had all been part of that mm. um, rather lively scene in Christchurch in the thirties and forties. Winston Rhodes was a young Australian who came to teach at Canterbury in 1933, mm. I think it was, and he was a sort of an intellectual powerhouse kind of person and started up the magazine Tomorrow. He was a, mm. he was a very um, ardent left-winger of a very 1930s, almost Stalinist style. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but um, very interested in local culture as well and people like um, Lawrence Bagent uh, he he taught Shakespeare at the university but um, he had worked for the Caxton Press before he mm. worked at the university and had been um, very close to Leo Benzeman and Rita Angus and others of the luminaries of that Christchurch mm. scene Charles Spear was a was a poet um, Many of them, Ray Copeland wrote for, and Archie Stockwell wrote for Landfall, as did Lawrence Bagent. So, and they, especially once I uh, graduated and came back to teach on the staff, these men whom I had revered as my teachers became my friends, you know, mm. and colleagues. And, and they were a very sociable bunch who... Uh, uh, my wife, Helen, was also teaching in the department and we were the bright young things that the older members of staff um, treated very mm. uh, sociably and invited us to, di to dinner parties and this sort of thing. And so I heard lots of stories right. about... And I, got, I developed a sense that there had been a, a kind of golden age mm. uh, in Christchurch but it seemed to have ended. Right. I, um, <laughs> it, it all seemed to have happened in the past, you know. And that was, uh, I remember, for example, you know, I remember saying, you know, where, where are all the poets? There didn't seem to be any poets. Right. I remember Alan Kurnow's Penguin Book of New Zealand Verse coming out in 1960. Mm. And there were, only, in that whole book, there were only two 
poets who lived in Christchurch out of 35 or something like that. Right. And, and yet you knew that there were all these that, stories yeah. about Dennis Glover and, right. mm. and of course, Charles Spear himself and mm. um, James K. Baxter and Ursula Bethel and a whole literary world. And some of those teachers of mine had been very close to that world. And uh, mm. Lawrence Bajan, for example, was very close to Ursula Bethel, knew her very mm, well. Right. Um, he was the person who published, he was working at the Caxton Press when mm. James K. Bax's first book was published at the age of 18 and mm. 1944. Right, so he'd been in, very much involved with it. Yes, then. yes. And Ursula Bethel, I think she was almost seen, I guess, not sure of the correct term, but almost like the godmother of the Absolutely. creative scene in that that yes, time, she right? was. Yeah. Um, she was a, a generation older yes. than people like Glover and Kerner yeah. and Lawrence Because Page her works, I think, had they come out in the 20s or even a little bit before no, that? No, the strange thing about her books was mm. that the big period for her as a writer was 1924 to 1934, okay. mm-hmm. when she was between the ages of 50 and 60. So she was a late, a late starter yes. as a writer. She published one book in 1929, I think it was, called okay. From a Garden in the Antipodes, mm. a very Anglo-centric yeah. kind of yes. perspective she had on things. Meanwhile, this young generation was emerging, mm. bright young articulate young university students and Dennis Glover and Alan Curnow and uh, Winston Rhodes and so forth. And they sort of persuaded her out of retirement and heard that she had a lot more poems than she published. And so Caxton Press offered to publish her work. And so a couple of books came out Mm. in the 30s. um, uh, And so... She had a kind of late blooming reputation yeah. as, as a writer yeah. uh, after she had actually stopped writing. It's fascinating, isn't it, to think of that time as well and all these names that you're saying, they're, they're, they all contributed so much to New Zealand. Yes. And, uh, well, the, she, she became a sort of a, of my book, Bloomsbury South, mm-hmm. she became a, almost a kind of, a, quite a leading figure. The first chapter is devoted to her because... Right. What fascinated me was to discover, I knew about her poetry. Mm. What I hadn't realised was the extent to which, late in life, she had become such an important figure for these mm. young intellectuals, mm. uh, like Lawrence Bajant and Charles Brash, who um, lived in England but visited her when he came out to New Zealand, and yeah. his friend Rodney Kennedy and John Summers and... Monty Holcroft and Eric McCormack, a whole lot of Mm. young men, looked upon her as a sort of mentor figure. Mm. And it sort of brought her out of her depression and seclusion, and she started to get a new lease on life through the influence of these um, much younger, almost all male friends. Yeah, Yeah. that's fascinating. Well, let's come back to this. Um, I, I want to understand a little bit more about Christchurch at that time. Mm. Um, but before we go there, mm. I want to talk about um, your decision to then go a different direction in terms of parliament and becoming an MP. Yes. Because this is a 
it's your life. There's many ways we could go <laughs> in terms of conversation. You've written so many books about so many different people, but yeah. I'd really love to understand your own thinking there because it yeah. was for the electorate in Littleton, right? Yes, I, that was, I, th I think, um, a kind of brain explosion in a way right. um, <laughs> that uh, took me into politics. But I really grew up in a rather apolitical family. I didn't, I didn't have very strong political uh, instincts, mm. and uh, and I think that probably my family were kind of conservative. You know, small small farmers who tended to support the National Party and mm. uh, had a, not to be too keen on uh, trade unions. And, you know, I think that was a sort of small C conservative background was more or less what I grew up in. Mm. But as a student in the 1960s, I was swept along with the mood of the times. And the, the great dominating event for my generation was the Vietnam War. Mm. And we were persuaded that New Zealand's involvement in the war was a bad thing. Mm. We marched against it, we organized against it. Mm. Um, so we, that was certainly for me, the politicizing event of my time. And, um, and then, if I, then I went overseas and marched against the Vietnam War in Toronto and right. uh, <laughs> and so forth. I wasn't. I don't think you'd describe me as an activist, mm. but I I was pretty convinced of the idiocy of that mm. uh, that warfare and uh, wanted to see it end. Mm. But I came back to New Zealand in 1976, and. The, the Vietnam War was over by then. But what dominated New Zealand politics in the period when I returned was the figure of Robert Muldoon. He had become the uh, Prime Minister in 1975. You know, the background to it was, I guess, that Norman Kirk had become the Labour Prime Minister in 1972 and suddenly New Zealand was doing quite remarkable things on the international stage, sending warships to Mururoa to protest against French testing and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, Norman Kirk came to Ottawa, the city in Canada where I was teaching at the time, mm -hmm. and he was the star of the show. You know, everybody was talking about this wonderful Prime Minister from New Zealand, Norman Kirk. Well, of course, only a couple of years after he became Prime Minister, he got sick and died. Mm. And uh, he was replaced by a very decent but not very charismatic man called Bill Rowling. Mm. And in the meantime, the National Party in New Zealand had elected Robert Muldoon as their leader Largely, I think, because they felt that they needed somebody formidable to to come up against Norman Kirk. But then, of course, Kirk died, mm. and Rowling was the leader, and he was no match for Robert Muldoon, who just stomped all over him. Right. Um, 
So it's uh, in this context that you make a decision that, that you yes, want to Yes, well, I, I, you know, the strongest political feeling I've ever had was my hatred for Muldoon. I resented what he was doing to my country. Right. I resented the bullying of journalists and the dawn raids on Pacific Islanders and the it, politics took a, an ugly turn, which I um, deeply d- disliked. And I came to the conclusion that the only way to respond to it was to try and get rid of the man. Mm. And so I joined the Labour Party and became a political activist. And um, But I was just, I saw myself as a foot soldier, you know, not somebody who had even contemplated politics as a career. Mm. But, you know, if you were sort of energetic and eager and able, which I suppose I was, you you rapidly rose in the Labour Party. It just, it was, they was were looking for people like me, you know. <laughs> sure. And um, so rapidly I became the leader of a branch and then head of the, the Labour Party organisation in the Littleton electorate where I was living, mm-hmm. not in Littleton itself, but in the electorate. Mm-hmm. And we um, we elected um, a very bright young MP to represent Littleton, Anne Herkus, and, mm-hmm. and, it, and we organised to, you know, to try and get a Labour government back into power. And that took years, you know, it was 1984 Mm. before that uh, eventually came to pass. When it did come to pass, and David Loggy became the Prime Minister, and Herkus, by then I was sort of her right-hand man, I suppose you could say, Mm -hmm. politically speaking. She became a Cabinet Minister um, in the Loggy government and Minister of Police, Minister of Women's Affairs, Minister of Social Welfare, mm. uh, a bright young star. Many people spoke of her as a potential leader of the party and that sort of thing. Anyway, when the 1987 election uh, was coming up, I was the head of her election team, re-election team, and chairperson of the, the LEC, the Labour Electorate Committee, in, mm. her elect- in that electorate. But suddenly, just a few short months before the election, uh, to everybody's surprise, Anne Hercus resigned. Right. And suddenly we had an election (laughs) two months away and no candidate. I see. (laughs) (laughs) And I was standing in the front row. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So um, having had absolutely no ambition to... Right. political career suddenly i had an opportunity and i was tempted and, you took and it. i fell yeah <laughs> <laughs> and looking back um is that yeah how was it for you how long were you uh, well i was then? i was in and out uh, very fast mm. i i i was in for one term mm. i was voted out in 1990 which was the there was a huge um, reaction against the longy government, largely because of the economic policies of Roger Douglas, Mm. which were new right, neoliberal, and uh, many Labour supporters um, saw that government as betraying Mm. the traditions of the Labour Party, and uh, and they uh, they punished the party by um, 
not voting for them. Mm. And the Littleton electorate, which I represented, was always a swinging seat. I see. Um, it had been Labour in the 50s and then it had been National and then Labour again. And it tended to go more or less as the country went. Mm. And in 1987, uh, um, it swung far enough towards National that I just lost by, I think, 50 votes. Mm-hmm. And um, if I'd won another, I think it was 27 votes, I would have right. you would re- have gotten, retained my yeah, yeah. position. But um, it was the smallest losing margin mm. in the country. Mm. But I was out. And uh, then I guess the big question came, what to do next? Should I try and get back into Parliament at the next election. Um, I'd had to resign from my university position in order to Mm. uh, stand for Parliament. The waters closed over me. My job was gone. Right. Uh, And I had a a very difficult period of trying to decide what to do. But to cut a long story short, in the end, um, a job vacancy came up in Auckland, Mm at the university, and I decided to apply for it. And the timing was rather diabolical because it took takes a very long time for university positions to be decided. Mm. And I had to make a decision as to whether to allow my name to go forward for nomination for the Labour Party. And I didn't know the outcome of my job application at the time. So I I just had to uh, make a decision and I decided that I would not stand for re-election. Although at the time, all I knew was that um, I was one of 300 applicants for a job in Auckland. Right. Uh, But as it turned out, I got the job. Right. Uh, and, um, And subsequently... Resumed my academic career, yeah, and to of, which I was really much better suited, actually. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and along with the academic career, or in I guess in hand in hand with it, you've you've been publishing and writing a number of books over the years as well. Yes. Um, can you describe a little bit about your motivation for telling the stories of so many of the other New Zealand artists and writers yeah. that you've done? Because it seems to me like there's a you know, looking at the the last few decades that that you've really focused on a number of different people. I'm just yeah. wondering if there's some thought or how did you come about to decide that this is this is what you wanted to focus on right. and, and and go into the biographies of all these different people and, and you know When I was a student there was there was no such thing as New Zealand literature mm. as a subject that you could study. Right. It just didn't exist. And my literary training was almost entirely in English literature, Mm. you know, from Beowulf to Virginia Woolf, as we used to say. Right. And a little bit of American literature in Mm. in my master's degree, but otherwise everything that I studied was English, European literature. Mm. Um, But as a student... I had developed a strong interest in New Zealand writing. Uh, 
part, partly perhaps because of some of these stories that I, mm. I heard about Alan Kernow and James K. Baxter and those Christchurch people. But, and I started collecting books. Um, I got interested in the Caxton Press, who had published mm. many of those writers in Christchurch. And, and I, um, it just became a hobby of mine. Mm. Uh, but then when I was teaching at Canterbury in, I think, 1966, Winston Rhodes um, started up the very first university course in New Zealand literature. Right. Uh, the first in the country. And I was his tutor. Um, and so from pretty early on, I, I developed a, a kind of academic interest in New Zealand writing. Then I went overseas for eight years and my PhD had nothing to do with New Zealand literature. It was 19th century English literature. But, um, and when I was teaching in, in Ottawa and other places, I taught, you know, everything from Shakespeare to modern literature and mm. uh, American literature, all sorts of things. But I maintained in that time away a kind of underground life as a New Zealander. Sure. And I used to get books sent to me. I kept up with the literary magazines that were mm. happening in New Zealand. And and that period at the end of the 60s and the early 70s was a very vital period mm. in New Zealand writing. Mm. Late Baxter, Kurnow's return as a poet in mm -hmm. late in life, Janet Frame and... Um, Oh, all sorts of great things were happening in literature in New Zealand. And I, from a long distance away in Canada, I followed that movement. So when I eventually decided to return to New Zealand and was offered a job back at the University of Canterbury, once I got back, I said, I want to teach New Zealand literature. Right. And um, so, uh, and rapidly changed my the direction of my academic study and mm. specialised mm. on New Zealand's uh, literature and you know, continue to do that for the rest of my academic career, both in Canterbury and in Auckland. Mm. So a lot of the books that I've written, I suppose, are just the inevitable byproducts of, a, of an academic specialisation. Mm. Um, but... It was more than that. I, I was had a commitment to mm. the literature of my own country, mm. um, and you know, and I still retain it. It's mm. the thing that I most want to spend my time thinking about and, and writing about. Mm. I and, guess and if it I've, seems to me that you you're broader than simply the literary as yes. well, because we were talking before about you know Colin McCann and yes. you know um, also I think you know Lilburn and um, yes. music like you've written yeah. about a, it not because you, you've got poetry you've got literature but you've also got painters and yes. and you've got um, all these other traditions as well that you've been that's right <laughs> that came about in quite an interesting way I'd always been interested in painting you know always. Uh, responded strongly to art and had, but I'd never studied the subject or anything. I got interested in when the first my way into writing about art came about through Leo Benzeman. Mm. Leo Benzeman was a 
a painter, but I knew him best and first as a publisher and printer. Mm. He was with Dennis Glover, the, uh, the publisher of the Caxton Press, mm. and um, and I first met him in that capacity as a printer and publisher. Mm. Uh, he was also a very good painter, and um, not long after I came back to New Zealand in 1976, um, I bought a painting of his that uh, was um, exhibited at, at one of his um, solo shows in Christchurch. Mm. And I remember going to this exhibition and just being bowled over by it and thinking that it was like walking into a show of old masters. You know, mm. I just couldn't believe mm the quality of the work and the fact that he was so little known as a painter. And anyway, I bought this rather wonderful painting. It so happened that he grew up in Tarkika, and okay. uh, as I had done, and a lot of his paintings were about Tarkika and Golden mm. Bay, and which gave them mm. an interest for me as well. But anyway, I bought this painting, which became so fascinating to me that I decided I wanted to find out more about this man and mm. write about his work, mm. so, which I did. And that got me into thinking about and writing about art, and mm. I discovered that I had a, a passion for it and, mm. a, and some ability at it. And so I've, from that point on, I sort of expanded my field of operation, mm. if you like, to cover the visual arts as well. Yeah, well, I think it's wonderful, and I know you've um, curated different exhibitions as well That's haven't true. you and and then written some of the um the essays about the artists themselves yes. as well yes. yeah so it's it's been a fascinating career really when you think about all the different areas that you've been able to touch you know yes. not just because some people might specialize in poetry of a certain place or time whereas yeah. you seem to have been able to capture a bit wider than that into the painting and yes and, i've always um had an instinct for um, interdisciplinary studies, mm. I suppose, uh, within an academic concept, yeah. context, that's what you would call it. Um, and I, from quite early on, I was involved in interdisciplinary programs at Canterbury University, mm. bringing together specialists from various fields to look at um, subjects like the Great Depression, for example. Mm. And um, I, It's just been... I've never quite wanted to put all my eggs in one basket mm. and um, had an instinct to expand. And um, uh, that's, that's just stayed with me, you know, all my life, really. Mm. But it's so important, I think, because sometimes people do get siloed and they become a sociologist or a history person or a, a literature person. You know, yes. there's, there's not... A, it's, it's, a, it's, it's important to talk to people outside of your own discipline. I, I agree with that. Yeah. And that was really one of the strongest impulses behind my book, Bloomsbury South. Right. Because, you know, if you just studied the literature of the period, well, the, you know, there's a story to tell there, certainly. But when you realize that the literary people were interacting with composers and theatre people and uh, and painters and that there was a whole scene that 
multidisciplinary scene that they were mm. participated in and collaborated with each other. I just think it all makes it so much more interesting and yeah. closer to life, really. Yeah, yeah. that then than to take a, a narrowly specialist sort of angle. Yeah, rather than saying, well, this composer was active here mm. and not connecting with the fact that they also were friends with this poet over here yeah. who was also friends with this painter over here. And of course, in New Zealand back in the 30s, everything was just getting started in terms of the establishment of a kind of native mm. movement in the arts. And there were so few of them mm that they tended to sort of um, come together and seek each other out in sympathy. And somebody like Douglas Lilburn, for example, as mm. a composer, mm. well, he was the only classical composer active in the country, mm. literally, mm. in the 1940s. And living in Christchurch, you know, seeking out the company of like-minded people, mm. he naturally gravitated to the painters and the poets yeah. and the publishers and the theatre people, and he started to collaborate with them. So Nio Marsh took him up to compose the music for her Shakespeare productions. Alan Curnow, mm. he um, set... Lilburn set his poems to music. I actually uh, have a copy of that book that they did, you know, the centenary, the, yeah. I think 1940, where yeah. Alan Curnow wrote the book, yes. uh, wrote the poem, yes. you know, the one about sailing in a new direction. That's right. And then he composed the music, I That's think. That's right. He? Yeah. Yes, well, they they were um, absolutely like-minded. Mm. Um, they they had a very similar perception of the of the situation of the artist in New Zealand you know they wanted they wanted to be true to the country that they lived in mm. but they there was nothing in the art of the country that they wanted to attach themselves to it was all pretty feeble and right uh, and uh, echoing the 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 mother yes. country in a and way <laughs> whereas they were you know bright young men who wanted to attach themselves to what was the the best in the world, you know. So Alan Curnow, for example, wanted mm. to read Dylan Thomas and mm. W.H. Auden mm. and William Empson and James Joyce and T.S. Eliot, you know, and Douglas Lilburn wanted to uh, listen to Vaughan Williams and, um, you know, the bright young... Comp William Walton and the bright young composers of the day. Mm. So their sort of artistic mission, if you like, was to to create an art in New Zealand which took its bearings from what the best that was happening elsewhere in the world. Mm. And they said, you know, we want to be true to our own place, but we want to bring to bear on our place the highest metropolitan standards. So... Mm. For that generation, it was essentially modernism, and so they tried to bring mm. the values and standards of modernism to bear mm. on their situation as New Zealand artists. Mm. And that period that, that your book covers, 1933 to 53, um, the, the starting point, I guess, because I think Alan Curnow's first book um, came out in 33. He, he was a student up here at that yes, time, I think. he was. Um, was that when he was still studying to become a priest? It maybe? was. Yeah, he Valley was, of Decision. He was, he was born in Christchurch. Yeah. 
Oh, and no, I think born in Timaru actually, but um, but his his father was an Anglican minister yeah. in various and they Canterbury um, yeah. churches, and Alan wanted to follow his father into the Anglican ministry, and mm. so uh, moved up to St John's College in Auckland, which was mm. where you studied that sort of thing, mm. and so he came to Auckland for two or three years in the early thirties. But um, having completed his studies, he never actually mm. took the next step of mm. becoming a minister and decided to throw it all away and yeah. become a journalist and a poet instead. Yeah. And the, the book, though, is a fascinating one because it is called Valley of Decision, isn't it? Indeed. And you, and you wonder about what he was going through or thinking I think through that at that, if, at that if time. You, behind that book, there is a sort of crisis of faith. Yeah. Well, that's uh, how I read it as well. I, yes. I was, it's, as you know, it's very hard to get a copy of that book but i was like yes. you i love collecting books so i have yeah. a copy and it is fascinating to read through and yes and find out or try to think about what he was thinking yes yeah um yes yeah, so there are various stories about it uh, some of them i think are probably mythologized one story i heard was that he made the decision not to become a an anglican minister when he was traveling back to Christchurch on the inter-island ferry uh, to take up his, you know, career as an Anglican minister, and that the moment of decision, if you like, took place on board the ferry as he right. was travelling between the two islands. Yeah, at least that's one version of that's the story. one version. I'm sure there's many. So I want to talk about Alan, but just just to finish off the talk about Christchurch. Yeah. Um, because I find that really fascinating that there were so many talented people in one place, and yet today it's probably not as well known. Mm. Um, it's difficult to summarize, but what was it, do you think, that, that caused such a concentration? Because I know one of the yeah. quotes that you give is um, talks about how is it that in Christchurch so many assembled in one place? Yes. Well, it's. I, I think in a way I wrote that book in order to answer that question, and mm. so you... It's really it's not an easy question to give a simple answer to. No. But I think that it was a combination of various factors. Uh, for one thing, because of the nature of the Canterbury settlement, there was always um, a strong tradition of the arts. You know, so the people that set set up in Canterbury, they wanted to build museums and have choirs and art galleries and art societies mm. and universities and mm. you know they they imported uh, English culture pretty wholesale. Mm. Um, So that Christchurch and Canterbury has always had good institutions, you know, schools and museums and mm. universities and that sort of thing. And I think that that was one of the reasons. Mm. So it became a kind of centre for the South Island, mm. to Needham too, to some extent. But, you know, myself growing up in Golden Bay at the top of the South Island, it was automatic that I would come to Christchurch for my university study right. so it became an educational center and a lot of people came from elsewhere mm. 
And a lot of those famous names that are in my book, Bloomsbury South, mm. Douglas Lilburn, Rita Angus, mm. Dennis Glover, they mm. weren't Christchurch people mm. born in Christchurch. They came to Christchurch right. because for education purposes. Mm. So that's one thing. Um, another thing is that the 1930s, the, the depression of the 1930s, was a real shock to New Zealanders. The country had grown up, you know, with a rather complacent sort of image of itself as the empire's outlying dairy farm, you know, mm. um, the better Britain of the South Pacific. These sorts of phrases were very popular. And that they were somehow English, but better than the English, you know. Um, but then when the Depression arrived, that gave a pretty heavy knock on the head to that sort of complacency because suddenly, you know, thousands of people are out of work, living, you know, in poverty. Um, and uh, it just, the whole basis of the country's prosperity was brought under question. Yeah. And so for the young generation studying at university, you know, inevitably they they came to mm. question mm. what they'd been grown up with, and they wanted to critique the society that they How were part of. How did we of. come to that's be right. where we are, and where so, the, the automatic job isn't there yes, as well, probably? So that's what does right. this mean? And it also, in a strangely paradoxical way, gave them a kind of affinity with the bright talents in other parts of the world, because every part of the world was experiencing mm. the depression and every younger generation was fascinated by Marxism and yeah. the possibilities of a socialist revolution and all that sort of thing. And so people like Kurnow and Glover writing as young 20-year-olds in Christchurch could suddenly feel that they shared exactly the same concerns mm. as... T.S. Eliot and Auden in England or sure. uh, writers in America and so forth. And mm. it gave them a, a feeling that they they were part of a wider world uh, and could participate um, in those wider movements of history. Mm. So I think that's another factor. Mm. Um, then um, I think that there was a certain amount of serendipity involved. Yeah. Just the good luck of a number of talented individuals happening to uh, be in the same place at the same time and to sort of take fire from each other. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the presence of somebody like Glover with the desire to be a printer and a publisher, mm. he attracted... Uh, the, all the writers around and yeah. then somebody like Naya Marsh getting her theatre going during the war years and looking for bright young talents as actors and composers and and so forth. There were mm. You need a few people like that to generate um, a sort of gestalt, you know, mm. and uh, and I think that's what happened, mm. that they took... Um, they took fire from each other mm. and created a kind of scene, yeah. more or less out of nothing. Yeah. Um, it's really remarkable, isn't it? I love the way that you've described that as well. Um, and the reason that I love it, well, I love that phrase, you know, taking fire from each other. Because in a way, if you get one person who's a catalyst, yes. who can really affect change, you put them with someone else who's a catalyst, 
you're probably going to achieve double. Yes. What you know because they'll they'll go off of each other, iron sharpening iron, and become even better. And that's then if right. you can get even more people together, and the reason why I think that's relevant today, because I live in Christchurch. Yes. And I actually wonder if maybe the earthquakes of you know seven years ago yes. haven't been some sort of an event which has been not it's not the same scale as a depression of course but mm. you know that there is something that happened that was significant that jolted people in yes. a way that we're only now beginning to reflect on and understand I, i'm sure that that's right yeah and i have been to christchurch you know quite a few times in the last few years mm. and I've um, I've certainly felt that there was um, an energy in the city, mm. uh, in the arts in particular, mm. that um, uh, that showed a lot of promise in mm. terms of of the future. That yeah. uh, uh, that that good things were bound to come out of that yeah. catastrophe. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the the area that I deal in as a lawyer is I deal lots with startups and people yes. have entrepreneurial ideas. Yeah. And I meet people all the time with really good ideas. Yeah. Who want to start businesses, want to challenge the way things have been done in the past, mm. and it's not in the arts. Like they're not a poet or right. composing music, but they right. are taking creativity and applying it in a different, unique way. And yeah. I, I just wonder, I think there might be something there if we look back at the past and think about the Depression and what it led to and then the earthquakes yes. and what it's leading to. Yes. Well, my hope is that it will actually lead to a rebirth in the arts, but also in business and other areas as well. I, I, uh, I think that's very likely the case. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and one of the reasons I asked to interview you, I think I told you, is that I uh, had a meeting with a, a number of different people who I've um, gotten to know down there, mm. and I actually pointed them to your book and said, look at what was happening in Christchurch from 1933 to 1953. Yep. It was actually a center of New Zealand culture and literary endeavor. What if, what if we as entrepreneurs and artists and philanthropists and others could actually come together and, you know, to take your phrase, take yeah, fire from each other. Indeed. Yes, the, uh, you know, I I think there was a golden age in Christchurch at that time, which mm. had its own particular moment in history. I think, I think it became important, not just locally, but nationally. Mm. I think it was the local centre of a national phenomenon. And things like the Caxton Press and mm. the group, they were institutions which brought in talents from other parts of the country. Um, and so and so that movement, the reason it's historically important is that it wasn't just local, it was of at least of national significance. Um, and um, now where am I going with this? Um, well, just to pick up on one thing mm. there is that all of these people then dispersed to Auckland or wherever That's they, right. Wellington or wherever yes. they went. So it wasn't just a defined period in Christchurch's history. It actually, it, to use my podcast name, Seeds, you know, that seeds go out yes. and they become something even more. Yes. And in a way, that's sort of what was happening there as well, yeah. wasn't it? From a yes. New Zealand Yes, oh, absolutely. There was, an, um, there was a quite um, amazing sort of uh, 
falling apart of that scene. Mm. You know, you take, I think, you know, 20 gifted individuals were probably responsible for a large part of what was going on, and then at least half of them left town within a year or two after the end of the war. Right. And, you know, of course, that wasn't the end of interesting things happening in Christchurch, no. but it was the end of that particular wave, if yeah. you like, you know. And, and in a way, you know, like with Baxter, you have an example, because he was noticed by Caxton Press, wasn't he? And, yes. And published. Yes. And then went on to do other things yes. that were yes. quite different. So. Yes, he, he, you know, he was attracted to Christchurch. He grew up in Dunedin. He was yeah. attracted to Christchurch because of what was happening here, yeah. and especially the Caxton Press, which became his publisher. Mm. But then... He moved on to to Wellington, and um, Colin McCann, who was mm. his great friend, spent a few years in Christchurch, but then he moved on to Auckland. And there was, I think, a kind of movement. The cultural centre was moving north. I think mm. in mm. the in after the war, mm. so it was a it was a discrete moment in the history. But um, you know, of course. Um, uh, time moves on and other other things happen and um, I certainly don't want to give the impression that I think that you know everything good happened in Christchurch half a century ago and sure. nothing good has <laughs> happened since <laughs> no indeed <laughs> now I want to talk a little bit about Alan Kernow sure. as well and I know you edited um, some of his writing yes. um, now a number of years ago yeah. um, Look Back Harder yes. um, which um, must have been quite an experience for you to because yes. even at that point, he would have been considered an elder statesman of the Absolutely. of the literary world, and um, and I'd love to hear a little bit of your memories of him. Mm. Um, but also, I, I brought this along. I'm just going to hand it to you. So, I just wonder, um, for you, when you see something like that, you know this. So this is Jack Without Magic, yes, which is a book of Alan's um, yes. poetry published by Caxton Press, indeed, in the 40s, I believe. Um, yes. I just am curious because I'm looking around your room here, and there's literally hundreds of books here, and I've seen many other bookshelves. What does what does um, a book do for you, and and why would you collect them? Well, I I love to read, but but books are also for me physical objects. I mean, I just love the look of this book, mm, and I know about its history. Mm. You know, um, Dennis Glover, who was a a typographer of genius rang up Alan Kurnow, who was his closest friend, and he said, "Look, I've got a certain kind of, I've got a typeface here right. uh, that I've I want to experiment with, and mm. I happen to have some a few sheets of a very very fine pre-war handmade paper. Oh. Have you got a few poems that um, you know would lend themselves?" To this um, project, and Alan said, "Oh, I, I, I might have I'd, something. <laughs> might have one or two. And so that's how that's oh, how it came to pass. You know. um, so it was uh, the very motivation for the book was the desire to make a beautiful object, you know, mm. uh, and um, to experiment with new fonts and." Uh, use the best papers and mm. and so forth. That's um, well, it's withstood the test of time. I think it's an amazingly yes. 
it's a beautiful uh, yes, beautiful it, object isn't it it's it so is. small that's um, right but you know the paper like you say it's really a beautiful thing yes well i think that um, you know New Zealand was very lucky to have a publishing house like Caxton, mm. uh, which um, brought such high standards to bear on book production. Yeah. Um, like many aspects of that cultural scene, it borrowed its methods from elsewhere. There had been a kind of revolution in book publishing in England in the 20th century. Mm. Uh, uh, important new typefaces were being invented and created. Mm. Um, people were uh, thinking about different ways of designing books and so forth. And that revolution mm. um, was learned about by some young New Zealanders who said, we can do that. Right. <laughs> you know, we, we'll, we'll read Stanley Morrison and Eric Gill and we'll import their typefaces and, mm. you know, we'll revolutionise the way books are made in this country just yes. as they did in England. And, and that's, that's really mm. what happened. And that was it. Mm. So for you, when you see a book like this or, you know, I guess what I'm asking, because I love to collect Alan's Yes. Alan Kurnow's first editions, and if I can get one that he signed, you know, so much the better because there's yes. that physical connection. Indeed. But from you, from your perspective, because some listeners won't have that that love of um, the object of the book. Um, yes. In your words, what what does it do for you? Well, I just there's a sort of rarity value, you know. The I don't know how many were produced to this possibly 120 copies or something mm. like that they were yeah. mostly done in pretty small editions mm. they're not easy to come by you mm. know I've, i have a copy of this as well yeah but um it took me years to mm. to find one mm. um so there's partly the you know the fascination of the hunt you know of yes. uh, trying to i imagine similar to a vladimir nabokov you know searching out a rare butterfly you know um mm. Uh, but also, um, you know, people who love books, they love the look of them and the feel of them and the smell of them, and they're interested in the way the words are laid out on the page, and uh, and um, one just develops a kind of feeling for the book as a as an object, you know, mm. um, and. Uh, and it's it's as, it's as simple as that, really. <laughs> <laughs> and it becomes a piece of art in Indeed, itself, doesn't it? It does. So your memories of Alan, um, what? How did you first meet him, and and what was he like as a person? Yeah. If, if you were described. Well, so I came back to New Zealand in the late seventies and was teaching New Zealand literature, and it rapidly became apparent to me that Alan Kurnow was the most important theorist of the subject that I was teaching. Um, he was the most articulate and thoughtful expositor of the idea of a national literature. And um, not everybody agreed with his ideas. He, he became quite a controversial figure. And, uh, but he, he was so um, strong in his articulation of his thinking that he became the kind of point about which the whole discourse developed. Even if you were opposed to him, mm. you you couldn't ignore. You him. were <laughs> defined by that relationship, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. And I, 
I think it became aware, apparent to me that he was the central figure in the discourse about New Zealand literature or New Zealand art in general, and that everybody else sort of took their place in relation to him. And I found that all of his his essays are very important, but they were scattered all over the place. Mm. And I thought, how handy it would be to have a book mm. in which they were all brought together. Mm-hmm. So I came up with this idea that I would um, put together such a book. Mm. And so I wrote to Auckland University Press and I put a list together of the essays that I thought should go into it and uh, and the director of the press said, well, that's an interesting idea, but of course it'll, it'll all depend on what um, Alan himself thinks. And so he put the idea to Alan and he was interested. So I flew to Auckland to meet him and to discuss the prospect with him. And he... He had had the idea of putting his essays together, I think maybe 10 years earlier or something like that. But for some reason or other, it hadn't come to pass. Mm. And by this time, by the mid-70s, he was absolutely committed to his new poetry that was beginning to flow again. Mm-hmm. And and he wanted to put all of his energy into writing new poems. Right, And so... He he obviously sort of looked me up and down, checked me out, and <laughs> seemed to decide that I was a reputable enough character to do this job. And so um, he agreed to it. And um, so I was living in Christchurch. And he was living in Auckland. And I think we probably only met about twice during the whole four years, I think it was, oh, that wow. put the book together. And... And those days were the days of snail mail, of course. So we wrote lots of letters to each other, I just ty- typed letters and handwritten letters. And um, I, que- you know, I um, consulted him about all sorts of points about what should go in and what should be left out, and you know, all the little details that go. To- into the making of a book of that sort. And he's very meticulous and uh, thorough and careful sort of person. And, mm. and so we had this quite exacting but very deeply interesting mm. correspondence that went on to over three or four years mm. while, you know, while the book finally came together. And I kept on finding new things as I was going along. <laughs> For instance, at a certain point he had... Um, He'd worked for the press, the Christchurch newspaper, and he quite often published reviews or articles in the press. And some of these I knew about and wanted to include in the book. But I had relied on on an index that had been provided by the newspaper. But I got an idea from something that happened that maybe this index wasn't complete. And so I went searching, and I started to find a whole lot of other things that had not been indexed. And eventually I had to read through uh, the the literary pages of the Christchurch Press uh, every year from, I don't know, 1933 to <laughs> 1960 right. in order to 
hunt down all the many, many essays that uh, he had written that I hadn't known about. So I kept on changing the contents of the book right up to the last minute. It got fatter and fatter as right. time went on. You kept finding bits of gold here and there. Indeed. <laughs> but uh, in the end, it, it, uh, it came together and Alan and Jenny, um, his wife, came to Christchurch to for the launching of the book mm. and um, he gave a public reading at, at the university f- to my class and mm. also a public reading sponsored by the, the press newspaper. So we made quite a mm. quite an occasion of it. Yeah. But um, I always found him uh, a delightful person to deal with, actually. Yeah. Uh, very exacting, mm. not, you know, not kind of casual or easy, but always very courteous and... Um, always responded quickly to queries as I raised them and that sort of thing, and um, uh, and so although I didn't, I only met him on a couple of occasions back in those days. Um, it was a very, it was a very satisfactory relationship from my point of view, and I think he liked the book that came out of it, and mm. so it, it was, it all went well. Mm. Then, of course. I think that book came out in 1987, mm. and that was the year that I went into Parliament. Right, and and um, the upshot of that, the eventual upshot of that, was that I moved to Auckland because I mm. uh, had decided that I wasn't going to continue with my parliamentary career and that I was going to try and get back into the university. And Auckland was where I was offered a job. Yeah. So I moved up here in the in the 1990s and. Naturally enough, um, Alan and Jenny became our friends, and oh. um, we used to they have them to dinners and parties at our place, and attend dinners and parties at their place, mm. and um, mm. so I got to know him quite well. Yeah. Visited him out at Curry Curry, where he had his uh, summer batch, and mm. um, uh, um, always attended the launches of his books and that mm. sort of thing. I always found him a, a, a really charming man, uh, very gracious, uh, amusing, you know, good company. Mm. He tended to be a bit of a monologist, you know, uh, um, uh, but wonderful company. And um, uh, I, I just feel very lucky and privileged to have um, mm. got to know him as well as I did. Mm. That's wonderful. It's a great testament to that friendship. I think the thing that strikes me about him, because he passed away in 2001, that was the year that I graduated from university. Yes. So I remember moving to Wellington from from Christchurch and finding um, a book that he'd written, The Bells of St. Babel's, which was the last book, yes. which was published, I think, either just before or around the time that that he was gone and yes and then i remember like buying the book and realizing that he had been born in 1911 yes and he was still writing in his you know 90th year that this book was coming out and then i investigated further and found oh his first book came out in 1933 that's almost 70 years that's extraordinary i mean that's that's a longer career than Thomas Hardy or, yeah. you know, any of the mm. Robert Graves or yeah. any of the famously uh, 
And that's that, that's what got me months. into the the idea of trying to collect his books. I'm still yes. missing one or two, but I have nearly all of them. But yes. it's remarkable because it's literally the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Yes. Like the, and quite consistently as well. That, that every yes, well, of years. you know, when I first got to know his work in the 1960s, he had stopped writing virtually. Right. And he there were... There was a long gap in the middle of his career where he published virtually nothing. Mm. And then suddenly, in 1972, he published a new book, and much to everybody's amazement, and it was a brilliant new book, mm. Trees, Effigies, Moving Objects. Mm. Mm-hmm. And he that got him started on, on a whole sort of second career virtually, yeah. and, and he continued turning out marvellous poetry right up until the year of his death. Mm. Yeah. I remember uh, attending a, a poetry reading at the Going West Literary Festival uh, just, I think, a month or two before he died. And mm. uh, he looked as... It, it was almost like listening to a ghost, you know. He was this pale, almost ghost-like figure, reading beautifully. Mm. But, um, you know, he he died within a month or two of that occasion. Yeah. Yeah, it's oh, fascinating. Yeah, that's what really motivated me to set up a website dedicated to him at yes. alankerno.com, yeah. um, where I'm trying to compile some of the records of, of what he'd written. And you very kindly sent me some um, pictures of the cover images from some of right. his books to right. try to to pool some resources there, because sure. I, I didn't find there was much out there about him. But of course, now there's the, the biography, which came out, Indeed. which is great. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, Peter, it's been lovely to talk with you. We've covered many, many subjects, and I just want to thank you so much for your time. I feel like I've had an insight into many different chapters in New Zealand literary history. So thank you so much for spending the time to talk with me. And, thank you. Uh, yeah, really appreciate it. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Peter. And one of the things that's mentioned was the website alankerno.com, which is something that I've been running for about a year and a half, and it's devoted to the poet Alan Kerno. So if you're into poetry or you're curious about who he was, you might want to check that out. Now, in next week's episode, we'll speak with Fiona Allen, who's the chief executive of Paralympics New Zealand. Here's an excerpt of the interview with Fiona. I am now have the the pleasure of being able to phone our selected athletes um, of their selection um, to Mm. games teams. And it's still a very special moment Mm. that I place on that um, because I understand the importance of it for the athlete receiving that call. Well, I do hope you can join me for that episode. And thanks for the feedback, which you can leave by giving a rating or review in the podcast app that you're using to listen to this podcast. And also, it's on Facebook. So if you look up Seeds Podcast, you can see some videos and other behind-the-scenes things. Until next time.